0: Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. I want to start off this morning with, I guess, a series of related questions to get us thinking about the concept of faithfulness. So the first question I want to ask is, what does it mean to be faithful in marriage? If you thought about faithfulness in marriage, what does that mean? I think a lot of people would immediately go to, well, faithfulness in marriage means fidelity. Uh, Actually, the word fidelity comes from faithfulness. Uh, Most people would define faithfulness in marriage simply as, I never cheated. But I don't think that that's a full concept of faithfulness in marriage, because you can go your entire marriage without cheating, but shouldn't faithfulness in marriage mean growing in affection, growing in devotion to one another, growing in intimacy with one another? Isn't that a better, fuller picture of faithfulness than simply practicing some self-control over time? The the picture of marriage that I think we want is intimacy and love and growth with one another. So faithfulness in marriage is bigger than simply maintaining uh, fidelity to one another physically. What about faithfulness with money? What does it mean to be faithful with money? If I had a, someone that was managing my retirement and I said to them, okay, over these years, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you $100,000 to manage for me. When I get to the end of my career, I'm gonna wanna see what you did with it. I get to, uh, you know, probably, it'll be like 78 by the time I can retire. Uh, but when I get to 78 and I say, okay, I gave you $100,000 and he says, yes, and here I have for you your $100,000. And he'll say, I was faithful with it. Everything you gave me, I'm giving back to you. And I'll say, that's not what I was expecting because faithfulness with money isn't just burying it in the ground and Jesus told a parable to this effect. Faithfulness with money is not just burying it in the ground but it's using it for its intended purpose, right? The intended purpose of that money was grow it so I can retire, Right? Uh, Just like the intended uh, faithfulness with money means using it for its intended purposes, using money that's budgeted for the groceries on the groceries, using money that's budgeted for the bills on the bills. Using money that goes to God for God. That's faithfulness with money, using things for its purpose. So, faithfulness in marriage goes beyond simply sexual fidelity. Faithfulness with money goes beyond simply burying our money and making sure that if we start with a dollar, we end with a dollar. Uh, So, this is the question that I wanted to build up to What does it mean to be faithful to Jesus? And how do we define and understand faithfulness to Jesus? I think if you got 100 Christians in a room and asked them faithfulness to Jesus, uh, there'd be a variety of answers. With 100 Christians, there might be 150 different answers, but uh, a lot of people would probably say it's about obeying commands and uh, doing certain deeds and... It would be very action-oriented, and all of that would be accurate, but the passage that we're going to look at today, I think, provides a very clear and precise understanding of what it means to be faithful to Jesus. We're going to look for a moment, uh, and this is, today we're concluding our series on the church in Ephesus. We've been looking at this for almost a year, this church in Ephesus. Frankly, this whole series has been to build up to this passage We're going to look at the letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Because Jesus describes the church in Ephesus as hardworking, persevering and enduring, yet he says to them, I may remove your lampstand or I may cease your operations or I may close your church if you don't repent. And that Begs the question to me, what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus? Now, without planning or preparing this, the passage that Dorian opened up the service with is actually the passage that I'm reading today. So I don't think that's a coincidence. If I were you, I would listen. I mean, that's true every week, but... When several people independently show up prepared to share the same passage, what do you think that is? So I wasn't prepared to say that this morning because I didn't know he was going to share from that. But I think maybe this is a timely message that Jesus has for us. And the message I'm referring to is the message of uh, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. So before I read it, let me just give some context here. The Book of Revelation is written in about a d ninety five so this is about this is written about sixty years after jesus 's resurrection uh, a generation and a half has passed um Many of the first apostles are dead. We're just left with the Apostle John. The Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation while he was on uh, he was exiled to an island. He was basically a a criminal, considered a criminal because he was preaching the gospel, and so they put him on this island called Patmos, and that's where he lived out the rest of his life. So one day, while he was worshiping, uh, it says on the Lord's day, while he was worshiping, he was in the Spirit, and verse Revelation 110 says he was in the spirit and he hears behind him a voice, and he turns around to see uh, who is speaking to him, and this is in Revelation 1, starting uh, in verse 12. He turns around and sees, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Mind you, he's probably on a beach or something on an island. He's in the spirit, so he's just whether that means he's worshiping or praying, he's communing with the Holy Spirit. He turns around, hears this voice, he sees seven golden lampstands. Now these lampstands would have been, you know, they didn't have electricity, so think of large candelabras, maybe six, five, six, seven feet tall. That's what these lampstands would have looked like. In the middle of those seven lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, so like, kind of like a human being. Clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars... And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. So, I think we know this. Who is he seeing here? Jesus. This is the glorified Jesus. This is, this is Jesus without the human flesh on. This is, his face is shining. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. His hair is shining. His voice sounds like Roaring rapids. Sounds like the the sound of many waters, it says. He's standing among these seven lampstands, okay? So he's encircled with lampstands. And what's in his right hand? Seven stars. This is fascinating to me, that Jesus can hold stars in his hand and not get burnt. So John, when he sees this, falls on his face. This is actually a common theme. Isaiah, Daniel, John, others. Uh, in Matthew 17, when Jesus is transfigured and kind of takes this form on a mountain, Peter, James, and John all just fall over. I, I would I would love to see that, or maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I would have been falling over with them and would I would have known what to do. But the, he just falls on his face and... Uh, I'm going to skip down to chapter one, verse twenty, and this is not on the screen for you. Uh, Jesus says, "As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So, at this point in Revelation, there are seven primary churches. Uh, In the region, this would be in the area of modern-day Turkey. There's seven churches. Those lampstands that Jesus is surrounded by represent those seven churches. So there's Pergamum, there's Sardis, Smyrna, Thyatira, Philadelphia, not our Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Ephesus are these seven churches. And they they actually are on a map kind of in a circle. It would be like a circle that a two-year-old would draw. But it's like a circular. So Jesus is in the midst of them. So when he's he's in the midst of the lampstands, what does that actually mean? Jesus is in the midst of the churches, right? And what's he holding in his right hand? Seven stars. What do the seven stars represent? It says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So each church has apparently its own angel. Now we don't know exactly what that means. It very well might mean that there is an angel assigned to every every one of these seven churches, but the Greek word for angel is messenger, and it says, uh, it it actually would say it's the messengers of the seven churches, so it may very well be the pastor. It's probably not hard for you to believe that pastors can be confused for angels. Uh, Good joke. So, this is, this is what that means, these seven angels. It's either an actual angel, each of those seven churches has an angel assigned to it, or it's referring to the, the primary messenger of the congregation, the one who teaches the Bible most frequently. So in this case, if we're talking about the church in Ephesus, maybe we're talking about Timothy, but probably not because this happens 30 or 35 years after Timothy, after the book of ephesians and the books of first and second timothy we're almost an entire generation after what we've been studying these last few months so after the book of acts after the book of ephesians after first and second timothy 30 or 35 years pass and then this takes place so for instance this would not be true vine 2020 this would be like thinking of true, true vine 2055 with you know Pastor Columba and uh, you know Karis leading worship and Karis Santiago leading worship, you know, uh, Ross and Crystal's kid, not pregnant yet, I'm assuming, but you know, Ross and Crystal's kid on the drums. You know, I want you to think of the next generation. Okay? These are probably the kids of the ones we are reading about in First Timothy or new people that have come in in the 30 or 35 years since. So no pressure, guys. First Sunday back after getting married, and I'm already giving you something to do. All right, so let me read this passage. Dorian has already read this for us, so I'm going to read it again. This is starting in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance uh, and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus has three distinct parts that I want to look at today. Uh, You know, a lot of the letters that we read in the New Testament are written by Paul, Peter, John. Uh, These letters are written by John, but they're essentially dictated from Jesus to John. In fact, if you have a Bible that puts the words of Jesus in red letters, these should be in red letters. So these are words of Jesus. John wrote them, but Jesus said them okay so this is Jesus's message to this church in Ephesus that we've been studying for almost an entire year this church in Ephesus let's put it in context which in the book of Acts was kind of the one of the central places where the activity of the Holy Spirit was taking place they got saved out of all sorts of occult weird magic and stuff like that they they had really powerful encounters with the holy spirit in the book of acts you get to the book of ephesians it's the only new testament book that's not written to it's the only new testament epistle of paul that's not written to address an error it's just paul talking about heaven and the christian life you get to first and second timothy where Paul is giving Timothy advice on how to kind of clean house of the bad leadership in the church and how to establish uh, a healthy congregation, right? So this is Jesus. Now he's watched all of this. Jesus has been active in every phase of that church's life. This is his message to them. He starts off with words of affirmation, then he confronts them, and then he invites them into repentance. So affirmation, confrontation, invitation, Let's look at verses one through three. This is where he affirms them. So he starts off saying, you know, identifying himself. I am the one who holds these seven stars in my right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Verse two, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. If I'm listening to this as a member of the church in Ephesus, I'm I'm feeling this. Because if this is true, I've been faithful, I've been enduring persecution, I've been suffering, I've been testing false apostles and false prophets and finding them to be false and I've been discerning and I'm really enjoying Jesus affirming that because I've been putting in the work. I've been doing the hard things for 35 years. And it feels really good to have Jesus acknowledge that. And Jesus genuinely is affirming their deeds. Jesus sees their deeds, which could be categorized as their works, their troubles, their endurance, and their discernment. I mean, they're, they're doing the work. They're put, putting in the time. They're putting in the effort. They are probably feeding the poor and taking care of those who are marginalized. Uh, they're toiling. They're persevering because they're not living in a, like a, a Christian context. So they are the religious minority. They can't go to a store and find Christian books. They can't turn on the radio and get Christian music. It's difficult to follow Jesus in this context. They can't, even, they can't drive and pass 10 churches on the way to their church. They need each other. There's not a lot of stuff going on for them. And so they've been persevering in a setting where there's not a lot for them. They don't tolerate evil men. They're discerning. They're testing these men, some of whom are saying that they're apostles, and they're testing them and saying, well, then you're gonna have to live up to the signs of an apostle. Paul kind of delineates that in 2 Corinthians, uh, almost the whole book of 2 Corinthians, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter nine. He really explains what an actual apostle is. So they're testing them. They're being discerning. They're sniffing out the false teachers and removing them from the church, which is probably carryover from what Paul told Timothy to do. Timothy did exactly as I think John Eric preached this passage. He says, take the things you've learned from me and entrust them to faithful men who will then teach others this kind of generational approach. You're going to get it from me, then you're going to teach other people who are then going to teach more people. So we're, now we're at that more people stage in the life of the church So they're probably doing what Paul told Timothy to have them do, finding those false teachers and removing them from places of influence in the church. So Jesus sees every little act of obedience and he tells them, I think he's reminding them, listen, I'm very well acquainted with your church. Every time you suffer, I've seen it. When you've made a good decision, I've seen it. The food you've distributed, I've seen it. The care you've given to widows and orphans, I've seen it. That's, all, that's what I told you to do. That's what you should be doing. The false teaching that you've removed from the church, I see it. I think for us, this should be encouraging to us because Jesus sees every little thing we do. Now, that could be terrifying or encouraging, I suppose, depending on how you're doing. But listen, when you're walking into Wawa and someone asks for money and you have a dollar on you and you give them, I want you to know that Jesus sees that. When your neighbor is having a rough day and you pause to pray for or with them, I want you to know that Jesus sees it. It's important for us to know that Jesus sees every little faithful act that we do. That while they probably are going unnoticed by everyone else, they're not going unnoticed by Jesus. He sees those things. He sees the, the effort that you put into raising your kids. He sees the effort that you put in at work. He sees the way that you don't cut corners on the job or cut corners when you're doing your taxes or well, I'm assuming no one cuts corners on their taxes here. So he sees those things and he affirms those things. And I think if he, there was a letter to the church on Devereux Street in wissan he would say, I see these things that you do and these are good things but we get to this confrontation in verse four. After he says, you've worked and you've persevered and you've endured and you've discerned, this is what he says in verse four, but I have this against you, you've left your first love. Just one phrase, I have this against you, you've left your first love. There's a couple of different ways to understand what he's saying here, but they all mean basically the same thing. He's either saying that Jesus was your first love but you've left Jesus, or he's saying the love that you used to have for Jesus is not as hot as it used to be, uh, or he's saying that, that your love for Jesus used to be the most prominent thing because this Greek word for first means either you know uh, original or primary, but in any event, however you take this, it means the same thing. The love that you had for Jesus is not uh, The love that you used to have for Jesus is not what you have now. You've fallen from that. You've forsaken that. You've left that. And uh, I'm going to get to this in a moment, but he actually invites them to change. And there's a little bit of a, uh, a warning. This would be a warning. He says, I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. I think it's, it should be heavy to us that, wait, Jesus, you're saying that this church that's done good deeds, endured perseverance, faithfully protected biblical doctrine, you're going to close them down because they don't love you? And Jesus would say, yes. And I don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth because there's a sword in that mouth, and I don't want to get too close to it. But I think Jesus might even say, yeah. I don't need dead churches full of religious activity. And so there's this confrontation that they've lost their first love, they've forsaken their first love. In Ephesians chapter 6, at the very end of the chapter, this has to be divine foreshadowing because there's no way Paul would have known this other than under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The very last verse in Ephesians. Paul says this: Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. He's saying grace to all of you that love Jesus with incorruptible, that's a love that doesn't decay. It's a love that doesn't diminish. It's a love that doesn't go, grow cold. It's the last words that Paul says directly to the church in Ephesus. And now, a generation, 30, 35 years later, we're finding that some of the love was corruptible. Some of it did decay. Here's truly what's going on. They were not sustaining revival. They were not making disciples that sustain revival. And what Jesus is giving them is an opportunity to return and get to that point. This confrontation that Jesus has with them is actually his heart full of grace for them. If, he was, if Jesus was just an angry God, he would have just come in and shut things down. He wouldn't have given them an opportunity to turn. I mean, he starts off affirming them, right? And then he gives them an opportunity to repent and to change. That's actually, that, I think that what that reveals about Jesus' heart is, yeah, I would rather you repent. I don't want to shut this all down. I would rather you return to your first love. And so I think it's a work of grace and a work of love out of Jesus that calls them to this. I want us to understand as a church that work for God is not a substitute for love for God. Work for God will very naturally flow out of love for God, but work for God is not a substitute for love for God. We see this in uh, Jesus' uh, moment with Mary and Martha. Martha. And Martha is running around, Jesus goes to the home of Mary and Martha, and Martha's running around, you know, she's making sandwiches and she's cleaning the house and she's just being the hostess and she's doing the thing. Mary is just sitting with Jesus, listening to him talk. And Martha says, Jesus, aren't you going to tell Mary to help me out? And Jesus says, well, actually, Mary has chosen the better thing. That story really upsets a lot of people. To this day, there are people, I've heard it preached actually, totally missing the point of that passage. Some people are Martha's and some people Mary's and the church needs Mary's and the church needs Martha's. And it's like, but that's not what Jesus said. He said Mary chose the better thing. Can I, if you know that story, if you're familiar with it, can I just tell you the church doesn't need any Martha's. It only needs the Marys who sit at the feet of Jesus and listening to his teaching. So you might say, well, is anything ever gonna get done if we all just sit around and sing all day? (laughs) To that I would say, a lover will always outwork a worker. Because when Jesus says, come and sing to me, we sing. But if he said, okay, enough of the singing, now go share the gospel, those people that were singing will absolutely go share the gospel, a lover will always outwork a worker. And Jesus primarily wants lovers first who will then, out of their love for him, go do the things that he sent us out into the world to do. But if we're just doing, I, I, I wish I could talk to Martha uh, because I would like to know, well, what was motivating you? Were you trying to impress Jesus we're trying to add some value and worth to yourself. I mean, did you think that this would, like, uh, earn your salvation or what was going on in your head here? I don't, know, I don't know how Martha would answer that, but I do know that's how people, modern people in modern churches would answer that because I've heard enough people say it. People think that they have to uh, make themselves useful as if God hasn't made you useful. People think that they have to earn some points with God as if Jesus has not already earned your salvation. I mean, if you remove all of those selfish motives, there's only one motive left. It's I'm just grateful to God. I serve because I'm grateful to God. I have gratitude in my heart. The Holy Spirit's given me this energy. I have to expend it through service, and I get fulfillment when I see my gifts blessing other people. And that's the motive for service. We do it out of gratitude for God. So a lover will always outwork a worker. That's uh, The first person I heard say that was Mike Bickle, and that's stuck with me ever since. Tony Evans says it this way, duty has replaced devotion in the church in Ephesus. They're motivated by their duty, and that's not a bad thing, but it is a bad thing when it's your primary motivation. Duty, obligation, I must do these things, discipline. When that's not preceded by actual love and devotion for God it does become a dead and dry religion and if I can just pause for a moment and step back to talk about a trend that I've observed in churches uh, as I just look at church history and how denominations and movements form this is a trend that happens and it can happen in churches and movements and uh, families the first generation has a real, genuine, first-hand encounter with God, and it absolutely changes and transforms them. And so they have that encounter with God, and because of that, they say, well, I'm going I'm to get involved in a local church, I'm going to serve. So for instance, we'll say, I'm going to share the gospel and feed the homeless, and I'm going to be at every prayer meeting on Wednesday night because I met God there and I'm gonna do that because those are meaningful to me. That's the first generation. Then the second generation grows up being dragged to the prayer meeting, being dragged out to feed people, and being dragged to church, but they have not had that experience. So for them, it's like, well, this is what my family does. We've always done it. This is how I was raised. This is how I was raised. Is I want you to pay attention to how often you say that. Because if your reason you do things is because that's how I was raised instead of I experienced this firsthand, there's more for us to do. There's more digging. So the first generation has a real encounter with God that leads to some behaviors. The second generation has to pick up the behaviors. The encounter with God is totally optional. By the third generation, we're like, why do we do this? You, you seem, you, you seem kind of like you're just doing this out of tradition, right? And the second generation I say, well, it's how I was raised. But the first generation would say, God met me here. The second generation says, this is how I was raised. The third generation is like, I don't get this. You seem unhappy to be doing these things. So that can happen in a church. The first generation meets God in a powerful way and They decide that they're gonna make some practices and some kind of some routines and some rituals and some traditions, which are all good things as long as they're not replacing actual encounters with God. The second generation carries those things on, but if they don't have those experiences, it's just kind of empty routine and ritual. By the third generation, now we're starting to question those things. So one of the things we need to make sure that we do as a church and as parents is we have to make sure that the next generation is having their own first-hand encounters with God. You know, if my kids ask me why do we go to church, I don't want to say, like, that's because that's what we do. That's what our family does. I want them to meet God when we gather because then they'll understand why we do this. But if it's just, well, you know, this is what we do on Sundays, you know, we've got to make sure the eagles have their you know, prayers covered. I guess we didn't pray enough last week. But, you know, the, the how I was raised thing might work for a generation or two, but it's not going to work forever. We need people to actually have encounters with God. And so the church in Ephesus, the first generation, man, they, they had these Acts 19, 20, 21, encounters with the Holy Spirit. But now we're a generation or two past that. They're doing the things they were supposed to be doing probably because that's how they were raised but they've lost their first love. They've carried on the traditions, but they have not had the same devotion. So Jesus does have a solution here. He invites them into this kind of three-part process of restoration. He says in verse five, therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Remove your lampstands sure sounds an awful lot to me, like, I'll close your church so fast. You know? I mean, the, we know from chapter one that the lampstands represent the church. Now, close a church in the first century doesn't mean, you know, we'll lock up the building and give the keys away because they didn't have that kind of stuff. Close the church meant, I'm going to scatter you. You'll all be separating. You'll all be moving, that you won't be gathering anymore. They'll either be persecution or life circumstances that cause that to happen. But nonetheless, the lampstand would be removed. He gives them kind of this three part process for how to be restored. First, he says, Remember. Then he says, Repent. And then he says, Do the deeds you did at first, which I'm going to call that return. Remember, repent, and return. He says, Remember from where you have fallen. It's important for them, these Ephesian Christians, to understand that you've fallen. You used to really love Jesus, and now you've fallen from that. And he wants them to remember. This is the power of remembrance. This is the power of memory. This is why for 12 years I've been telling you to have a journal, so that you can remember when Jesus says to remember. So you want, you know, remember those days. Maybe this is true of you today. Remember those days where you were really close to Jesus, where you felt all day, every day, aware of him, you could pray and felt like your prayers were being heard, you could read the Bible and get something out of it and actually remember what you read by lunchtime. I mean, probably many of you have had those seasons of your life where just like it was full of life. And I think Jesus would say to the, to the church in Ephesus and to us, remember those days? Remember that? Like I think he's saying, let's have a vision for that. Let's have that be our normal. Remember those days that you used to have when, it was, uh, when we were close to Jesus, and then he says, repent. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. So whatever thought process, whatever lies you bought into that took you away from those days, you gotta reevaluate all of that. You know, If you, if you were praying and praying during those days and maybe some of your prayers didn't get answered and you bought into the lie that prayer doesn't work, you have to repent of believing that lie. Or maybe you got caught up in a relationship that took your, uh, your devotion to Jesus and distracted you. Or maybe, this, this happens, maybe you took a job that upset your schedule and you never did the work to reestablish a new schedule. But you have to remember where you used to be and repent of the things that change. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have a job. It just means that you have to reestablish a new schedule and and do those things. So remember, repent, and return to the deeds that you did at first. Now, I think this is interesting. If you look at verse two, he says, I know your deeds. And what's he talking about? Your good works, right? But now he says, do the deeds you did at first. He's talking about two types of deeds here. One of them is like you know, actions, service, that type of thing. He's like, yeah, I know the deeds you do now. I want you to go back to the deeds you used to do. You used to pray for hours and love it. You used to sing for hours and love it. You used to love to be around people. You used to love to be in my word. Now you spend all your time doing and serving but you're not being close to me and so he's using that word deeds I like you've you've switched one type of deed for another type of deed and the deeds that he's calling them back to are the type of deeds that cultivate intimacy and closeness with God he's saying go back to those deeds I think for us that means going back to practices that have worked in the past if you used to worship and throw music on and sing at home, and that worked, and you've gotten away from that, maybe you need to get back to that. Um, things change. you know some, We get jobs, we get relationships, we move, and our, our rhythms get messed up, and then we just never reestablish those rhythms, you know uh, you know, you have your fa- you have a bunch of sermons and worship sets on a phone and your phone dies and you never bother to transfer those things back onto your phone and a year goes by and you're just a mess. Maybe you need to go back and reestablish those things. You know, you you, you have a a radio station, a Christian radio station preset in your car and then you get a new car and it's not preset and you never bother to preset it and before no you know you're listening to sports radio forty hours a week and You know, that's kind of happened to me every time I get a new car. Um, I mean, it's really simple things, you know? You were actively involved in a church and there's a worldwide pandemic and global virus and all of a sudden you not only don't attend but don't even watch and don't even participate anymore. You just have to figure out how you're gonna go back to the deeds you did at first. Those deeds that cultivated love for Jesus. Now, I have... Uh, I have a very long relationship with this passage because if, I don't, if I'm not careful, my faith can become very intellectual and cerebral and I can just think about Jesus and not love Jesus. If I don't protect myself from that, that's the direction I would go. So I do have to protect myself from that. And a few years ago, God helped me <laughs> get protected by that, from that by sending a very direct Philly woman to confront me about such a thing. This was in the first few years of our church and um, I didn't know that I was drifting. I was experiencing this very thing. I was... Forgetting my first love with Jesus. And I didn't, you're almost never aware of that, I think. It's such a subtle drift. I remember on a Saturday night, we had something at church and we were done with the event and we were kind of closing up. And I was in the office here. And this lady came in who was part of our church at the time. She does not attend our church anymore. She moved, but she was part of our church at the time. And she said, Can I talk to you? And I said, Sure. And I was literally in a corner. I was in the back corner. And I was like, do I have a choice? If you can talk to me? That's the most Philly thing in the world, by the way. You know, like, I just got to talk to you for a minute. I was born, here's my life story. Um, So I literally was backed into a corner. I could tell that this was going to be a serious conversation. She said, I want to speak. Can I speak to you? I said, sure. Sure. And she said she read this passage, and she said the Lord told me to tell you you've forsaken your first love. And I was like, not having that, because I'll tell you a couple reasons that are not necessarily important for the story. I knew this lady's life, and honestly, my first response was like, you're going to tell me that because I knew what was going on in her life. Which two lessons there. Number one, if you're the kind of prophetic person who's going to deliver hard words, you just need to know that a bunch of sin in your life is going to undermine your ministry. People are going to say what I said. You're going to tell me. But if you're in my shoes, you need to understand God uses messed up people too. And uh, if, every, you know, if everyone that he used had it all squeaky clean, he wouldn't be doing anything. So I think there's a lesson for her in that and a lesson for me in that. Because, you know, I, I was talking to Susan about Hosea this morning. Hosea is a prophet in the Old Testament. His life was all jacked up. His wife was like messing around with other dudes and having kids with other men. And he, yet he's a prophet to Israel. But it was his very brokenness that was the message. And so she said to me, you've forsaken your first love. And I just kind of stood there, like I said, thinking, You're, who are you? to confront me when your life looks like that. And she said this this thing that I, you know, it made my skin crawl in the moment. She's like, do you receive that? And I was, and I, I, I know that for a person who gets messages from God and delivers them to people, do you receive that is like, am I right or am I wrong? And I said, I used my little pastoral weaselly I'll pray about it. (laughs) And I didn't, but I didn't pray about it. I went home and forgot about it. Six weeks later, on another Saturday night, I was in my office when I lived next door, and I was reading through Revelation, and I got to this passage that I preached this morning, and I read, I have this against you, you've forsaken your first love, and all of a sudden, that moment came back to me And all of a sudden, six weeks later, the Lord was like, you know, she was right. And I was floored, literally. I went to the floor. And that, uh, even though a lot of the circumstances surrounding that, I would say, are imperfect and not very churchy, the Lord used that in my life. And I, I cannot read this passage without thinking of that. And I know that I was guilty of that. And now every time I read this, even if I'm doing good, I just feel like I probably have. I probably have forsaken my first love. <laughs> I know I love you, Jesus, but probably, probably not, though. You know, like, And so I just feel moved to repent. You know, like, And so this passage, uh, I don't know. This is one of those ones you better always pay attention to. And particularly today with the way the Lord has orchestrated these things. Faithfulness to Jesus is not about religious work. It is about growing in your first, primary, and original love for him. A.B. Simpson spoke, and I'm, I'm wrapping up here. A.B. Simpson spoke about this passage, and this is what he said. This is one of the most serious dangers of our time, to substitute religious activity for spiritual life. It will most surely lead, as it did in Ephesus, to decay and final extinction. So if we substitute religious activity for actual genuine spiritual life, it will begin to have this decaying impact on our soul. And if I can be honest with you, that is my worst nightmare. That is my biggest fear as a pastor is that we would get so caught up in religious activity that we aren't actually cultivating a life with Jesus. My, the things that keep me up at night, the things that worry me, the things that create fear and anxiety in me are Jesus we have a really full plate, but I'm not sure that you're on that plate. We have a really full schedule, yet I'm not sure that there's room for time with you. And I, I Lord, I don't want to be one of those churches that continues with our traditions and our routines for three, four, five years, and then you say, you guys haven't really been close to me for five years. That terrifies me. But the opposite of that is, is my greatest dream. Um, everyone has dreams. A friend of mine is a pastor, and uh, I was talking to him, this is three, four years ago. He said, you know, what my, you know what my dream is, right? I was like, no, I don't know what your dream is. He said, I want to be the president of a Bible college. That's his dream. Some people, their dream is to write a book. Some people, their dream is to have a vacation house, this is my dream, this is the thing that I since I was a teenager have laid in bed and pictured in my mind being part of a group of people that are totally devoted to Jesus I've been imagining that since I was 16 and 17 years old Uh, what it's like to be part of a church or a group of Christians who are not lukewarm not half-hearted not complacent But are totally giving everything that they have to Jesus. I think that's the only way we're ever going to see what's in the Gospels and Acts. We're never going to see the Gospels and Acts if we go half hearted with this. So, my greatest nightmare is to go for 10 years active for Jesus, but not close to Jesus, and to hear this type of thing you've forsaken your first love, and be like, what have we been doing for 10 years? That's my greatest fear, but my, the, my dream is to be those that repent and remember and return and actually are faithful to Jesus. So I don't necessarily dream about the you know 500 people, 1,000 people at the church. I'll take 100 people that are fully devoted. Um, and I'm not trying to get more people. I'm trying to get more of people. So I'm gonna ask our worship team to come up and I've asked them to lead us in worship because I do think worship has an important, like a, a power in it that helps us remember, repent and return. Uh, if it's pointing us to Jesus and drawing us into that, the, the goal here is not to be sentimental and sappy. The goal here is to do those very things that Jesus told the church in Ephesus to do. Remember, repent, return, do the deeds we did at first. I trust our team. Uh, to lead us in this way so if you wouldn't mind standing with me they're going to lead us in a closing song we're just going to see where the Lord takes us with this you may have some stuff that you need to remember you may have some stuff you need to repent of you may need some commitments you need to make as you return this is time set apart and dedicated to that
1: you worthy of every song we could ever sing. You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Say, Jesus. Jesus, the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever save You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you, holy oh, live for you And holy there There's none beside you. Oh. worthy of all the praise we could ever bring worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you oh we live for you Jesus the name Jesus, the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever say You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you, oh, we live for you Say holy and holy, there is no there is none beside everything say I will build my life I will build my life oh phrase struck me this morning as I was thinking about the service today. It's a phrase I mentioned earlier that we often give ourselves to lesser loves and we're just so open and so free for lesser loves. But when it comes to God, we are so reserved. And if there's anyone that has been trustworthy of our love, of our heart, it is God. It is God who had his very heart broken to demonstrate his love for us. It is God who loved you even while you were yet still a sinner. It is God who though you were hostile in mind to him, he moved toward you and spoke your name. It's God, it's his love. It's his love that's eternal, it's never ending. It's this love that covers over a multitude of sins. This is the love that we enter into. This is the love that we open our heart to. This is the everlasting love of the Father towards all who are His. This is the very benefit of being called a son or a daughter of God, that He will lavish His love upon us. To identify himself as our Father. To identify himself as the lover of your soul. He loves the greatest, the deepest parts of you. The parts that you can't even stand. The Lord loves the depths of who you are. This is his love. So open up your heart today. Open up your heart to his love. Let his love come in. Receive the baptism of the love of the Father once again. Come on, church. Just open up your heart. We open up our hearts to your love, Father. Yours is an everlasting love. So we open up our hearts to your love. Don't It comes with refreshment. It comes with the weight that's lifted from our shoulders. It comes with peace. It comes with joy. It comes with heaviness that is lifted. Yes, Lord, we receive your love. We receive your love. And we choose to build ourselves on that love. Say, I will build, and I will build my life upon. Receiving you, Lord. Oh, God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Oh, let your mercy be seen. Let your mercy be seen. heart's petition right now, Lord, is that you will not let the fire of our lampstand be blown out or wear out, but that our lampstand will ever be before you, burning furiously with an illuminating flame. We receive your love, receive your love, the everlasting love. Receive your love, receive your love, the everlasting love. Thank you, Lord, for directing our attention to remember what we used to do out of love and affection for you, what we used to be a part of, God, out of full devotion to you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the kindness that you show us in giving us timely words so that we would repent and enter once again into full devotion to you. So Lord, whatever we see as an impossibility or a barrier to deep love for you, will you show us how to scale those barriers? Will you show us how to Declare the authority that we have in the authority that you have given to us. To open up our mouths and destroy walls. To come against principalities, O oh Lord, that have an assignment to keep us lukewarm and complacent and comfortable. Lord. A lover does whatever it takes. And so we want to be those kind of lovers that does whatever it takes to know your heart, to hear your heart, to feel your heart, to be close to you. We bless you, Lord, for all that you have done to help us in that way. So we walk not in our own authority but in the authority of Jesus. And I declare True Vine to be a church whose flame is burning bright with zeal and love for the Lord. True Vine, you are lovers of God. Sustain that love, pursue the lover of your souls. And find your joy satisfied and filled. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you. Thank you for pressing in. God bless you.
0: Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.